0: You're listening to audio from the town center campus of CA Church located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. And there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. You may be seated. And let's pray together. God of grace, eternal God, you've spoken to your people In various times and in various ways, in these last days, you've spoken to us through your Son, the Word of life, the Word made flesh. And so we pray this morning that your Spirit will open up our hearts. This morning, we meet together in order to meet with and receive more of you. And so we pray that this will be the case in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, it's good to be here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Brad, one of the pastors here at our town center campus of CA Church, and excited to give you the word this morning. I'll tell you right now that at the end of the service, I'm going to be rushing out because there are two uh, individuals from our church that are going to be baptized this morning, but up, we're going to take them up to the Mariner um, campus to do it because, you know what? They got warm water there, and it was either that or it was out here so that's not so good. So uh we're going to be bab- I'm going to be baptizing Ale Aguirre. Hey. And uh, <laughs> And uh and I get to baptize my daughter Ariel who is out in the in so you you can clap but you won't hear it. So that's all right. I'll tell her though. Uh so very excited to be doing that and so I'll be gunning it right after the service um today. But I'm excited to be uh, giving the word this morning, and for those of you who who've been with us for a bit, you know we've been walking through uh, the, the the book of Acts, which the the full name is the Acts of the Apostles. It's the action of the first followers of Jesus Christ, and how after powered by his his life, death, his resurrection. Um, the, the power of the Spirit, it animated them to run out into the world. To, they saw themselves as a movement moving and proclaiming this new kingdom that had been inaugurated by the coming of God's uh, Messiah, Jesus Christ who proved himself God's anointed one by his life, death, and resurrection. Now last week, um, we, 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 we had Pastor David here and he was talking about some trouble that Paul, one of the first missionaries of the church, uh, some trouble that he had got into kind of challenging the gods of, of the Greeks and, and we've seen that a handful of times and so we've skipped, if, if you're paying attention, we've actually skipped a handful of chapters to get to where we are today. So let me quickly give you the background of of how Paul ends up uh, pleading a case in front of a, a governor. When we last visited him, he was already getting into some trouble, but he, he was never gathering disciples. He was never causing or trying to start a revolt. He was never armed himself or told anyone else to arm themselves. Uh, he never challenged the authority of the Caesars. He is a very... Important penetrating questions that he's asking Greeks and Jews, and when they, they cannot find good answers, they've decided to try to shut him up, they've tried to cancel him completely to completely wipe him out, And so we, we actually see a lot of parallels between what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem and what happens to Paul in Jerusalem. So from chapters 23, 21 through to 23, Paul has been the victim of lies he's, that have been made about him. He's been dragged through the streets of Jerusalem by Jewish religious leaders who, who were trying to kill him. He was handed over to the Roman leaders and, he, and all the Jews came and they said, deal with this guy, he's a disturber of the peace. He stood before angry crowds shouting for him to be put to death. So Paul is identifying with with many of the things that Jesus went through. But things get complicated for the Roman leaders at this point because in Acts 22:25, 25, just as you just, you see the, the Roman guard, centurion, he's laying out all his whips and he's going he's gonna to get, get, give Paul a really hard time. He's going to whip him into submission to Rome. And in, chapter, in Acts 22:23, 23, he says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, the answer to that question is no, it is not. Romans could beat up. They could whip, they could throw in prison, they could even kill anyone who was not a Roman citizen without a trial. And they just assumed that Paul was probably not a Roman citizen. He was just a religious Jew causing some some trouble. But Paul had actually been born a Roman citizen. You could buy a Roman citizenship, but he was actually born uh, uh, through his parents. But no one bothered to ask him until the point where he brought up this important information. Now I lo- and I just I just wondered if Paul is like I'm just gonna wait till the last minute and lay all your stuff out get the crowd in uproar and like are you allowed to do this I love that <laughs> I never used that on my dad when I was a kid I'd be are you sure you're have you checked with mom. I, um, so, all the rules have changed for the Roman commander here, uh, based in Jerusalem. He now has to bring this up to a higher authority. And the, the ruler of the province, uh, well, the, 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 the ruler in Jerusalem was a guy named Lysias, but the ruler of the province was, was in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, and his, t- his name was Antonius Felix. Man, I had actually pushed that for our son's name, but Lelania wasn't up for it. Antonius Felix. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts 24. See, I brought you all the way there. Paul is is placed on trial for causing all this trouble in Jerusalem. And he's up against the high priest Ananias in Jerusalem and some elders from the temple. They had 71, but not all of them came up. And as it was, that wasn't enough. The only time we see this in Acts, the only time we see this kind of challenge against early Christians, they hired a lawyer, a lawyer named Tertullus. And I, we have no idea what Tertullus looked like. I'm going to read a little bit about him in a second. But every time I think of Tertullus, and you'll see why, I always think of this kind of image. I don't know why. Well, maybe I do know why. Maybe you'll, you'll see in a moment. See, he was a, a lawyer in first century Palestine. He was Greek background, Roman background. And now, what well, you need to know that lawyers in, in the ancient Roman world, they were masters of rhetoric. They didn't necessarily know the law, at least not the way we think of it. Their goal was to butter up the judge. They they hurl accusations at the accused in a convincing way, and they aim to convince by their words rather than by evidence. If they were really good at whipping up a frenzy and building a strong case just with their words, if it sounded good, that would often be enough. So in verse 1, we read this. It says, Five days later, this is after he was accused and sent up to Caesarea, The high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea, or down, with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. And he said, picture that guy I just showed. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Tertullus begins his case following, this is following the manual, following the formula, it's straight out of how you were meant to do court cases back then. He's actually using something called capatio bene volentia. Yeah, just trust me. Capatio bene volentia, which was a method with which to to win the goodwill. This is, as I say, part of Emmanuel. This is literally an ancient text that explains how to do it. Win the goodwill of the judge by drawing his attention to an aspect of his own judicial and administrative competence, which made him highly suited to hear a particular case rather than have it referred to a subordinate official for a jury trial. In other words, butter him up. Now, the thing is, everything tell us just said, uh, to tell us just said about Felix is a lie. <laughs> All the nice things. He said Felix was not liked. He was not good at his job. He was an angry, lustful, culturally and morally corrupt man who had a really well-liked brother in Rome who basically got him the job. And we actually read at the end of this text that he got fired two years later. Tacitus was a Roman um, historian of the day and he said this about, about Felix. He said Felix had the power of a king but ruled like a brute. Tertullus goes on to say we have found, in verse 5, we have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker. He's stirring up riots. Now, that word troublemaker in the Greek is actually a plague. We have found this man to be a plague. He causes disease, every, disease of thought everywhere he goes. He's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. If Felix hears the word Nazarene, he immediately goes to, oh, Jesus. Oh, this is the guy who 30 years ago, 20 years ago, was crucified. Oh, and Tertullus is thinking, you know what you do with Nazarene. You know what you do with people like this. Remember Jesus? Remember how Rome dealt with Jesus? Maybe you should deal with Paul the same way. And even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true and sharing them on Instagram. Oh, sorry. Apparently some early manuscripts do not contain that last part. See, Tertullus knows what many people know in public discourse today. First, you can cover up the weakness of your argument if you say it convincingly. Second, as journalist Shanna Alexander once said, trying to squash a rumor is like trying to unring a bell. That is the tactic still used in public discourse today. Something untrue is said, knowing that once it is heard, it's like trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. It's already been spread around the internet. It cannot be unseen. When Paul speaks, he takes a very different tact. He does not inf- he does not influence with flattery, but with just the proper amount of respect, and tells his story, which we read uh, in the- we-, we read the first part earlier, and then he says this starting at verse seventeen, which is the second slide I think we have coming up next. Yeah, after an absence of several years. I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts to the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple court doing this. There was no... So that's how they found Paul. He was, he was taking care of the poor, bringing gifts to the poor. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here, by the way, before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. He points out an important... Uh, law aspect there. In ancient Rome, if someone brought a, an, an attack against you, they had to be there for the actual court case or it would be disallowed as evidence. Paul's pointing that out. These, Asian, these, these Jews from the province of Asia, they're not even here. So this shouldn't even be brought up. Who, they ought to be here before you and bring charges if they had anything against me. Or, these who are here should state what crimes they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin being the, the Jewish religious court. Unless it was this one thing. I love, I love this It's Like, well, I did kind of do this one thing. I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. It's the only case that that they have against him. So Paul says, "Listen, listen, here's what you can find about me. I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow the Jewish law. I believe in the resurrection. I live my life before God in cleanliness. I came to Jerusalem to offer gifts to the poor, to make offerings. I did all of this on my own. I wasn't gathering a crowd around me. I wasn't leading them. There was no one but me doing this. I stood trial before the religious court, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. I did raise my voice. Guilty, sorry about that. We had a theological debate about end times, which Felix would not give a rip about. I, we believe that we, we discussed whether or not people would be resurrected from the dead, and we had a little theological debate, and I stand by it. This is the end of this whole court case. That's it. Tertullus brings up all these lies. Paul says, actually, this happened, this happened, this happened. And that was the end of the court case. Straightforward, unemotional facts from Paul. He's not caught up. He's not angry. So now Felix, the governor of the province, he's in charge. He's between a rock and a hard place. He knows the accusations are pretty much bogus and without warrant. He says, I actually know quite a bit about the way, about Christians, and we know that because he was married to a a Jewish woman and she probably was quite familiar with what was going on. But he doesn't want to let the religious leaders down because that could cause some problems. If the religious leaders get in an uproar, he could lose his job. So he needs to be very careful. So he does what every politician has done before him and has done since he stalls. (laughs) Let me think about it. I'll get back to you. Verse 22 Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Adjourned the proceedings. Um, when Lysias, this is the commander in Jerusalem that sent him to Felix, when he comes, I will decide your case. Lysias never comes. He's never even invited. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard. He had to treat him properly because he's a Roman citizen. But to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So that's the background story to get us all the way to this point. What do we do with this? There's three things that I want us to take away from this this morning, And they are, they are challenging. And we see it really coming up in this next section. There's three ways the gospel challenges us. Three ways the gospel challenges us, every single one of us here. First, the gospel is only as convincing as our lives are overtaken by it. Repeat twice for effect. The gospel is only as convincing as our lives are overtaken by it. It's true personally, and it's true as we try to bring the kingdom to our culture. In other words, some will say, well, think of it personally, some will say, Christianity's not working for me. There's always some follow up questions when someone says that. It, it didn't work for me. By that, we often mean a version of Christianity that is on our terms. We are are in Christian community when it's convenient. We compartmentalize our faith into parts that God's allowed to touch. And then we have our finances, our family, our our recreation, our time, our thought life. Jesus calls us to fully integrate our faith. He is either Lord of our life or he is not. To hold back parts of our life and to live kind of a, a double devotion and then say Christianity has proven ineffective for my life. That is a misunderstanding of what it means to call ourselves his. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, it is not The Christian idea has not been tried and found wanting. It is found difficult and left untried. Kind of like hair mousse for G.K. Chesterton. It's untried. That's fantastic hair. <laughs> In our own lives, the gospel is only as convincing as our lives are overtaken by it. All of it. But our world needs more than just crafty arguments as well. They need to see lives animated by the gospel. They need more than just an apologetic. Our crafty arguments and reasoning are only as effective as they are backed by lives that support their claims. Can we offer up evidence like Paul did? <laughs> when, when someone throws all sorts of accusations, like actually, I'm taking care of the poor, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of following my faith to the letter as best I can. I do make some mistakes here and there, but I, I stand by that. When we're accused, can we simply point to our lives and say the kinds of things that he does? I'm trying to live at peace with people. Historically, Often when the church has moved forward during persecution, it's because even those persecuting them look at them and they say, wow, look at the lives these people live. Even when we're putting all this pressure on them to stop. In 361, after this, this long in, in, encounter, there was, there was an emperor in Rome. And this was after Christians had spent some time with privilege, after Emperor Constantine. And then Julian, named by the Christians, Julian the Apostate, he wasn't happy about the privileges that Christians had, so he pushed back against them. But when he looked at the lives of Christians, he was frustrated because they were such good people and people kept coming to faith, the church kept growing, and he kept going, why is this happening? Until he started looking at the way that they were living. And then writing to a pagan priest about Christians, he writes this, he says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, Christians, observed this fact and devoted devoted themselves to philanthropy, caring for them. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. These Christians are making us look bad. Everything we try to do, they outdo us. In fact, what Julian did was he actually goes on to tell the priests, just look at the Christians and copy what they're doing. This will cause a revival in, the pagan, uh, in, in pagan worship. It did not. The priests could not buy into it. Because for them, it was just reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. It didn't matter. They had no hope and it was sinking, but they were just trying to make it look a little bit better. So what are we known for? In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter writes this. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The truth of the gospel alive in Paul's life didn't match the characterization that Tertullus had created. And a gospel-infused life that we see throughout Acts, it opens up opportunity for gospel proclamation. And we see that here in the next verses in Acts 24. This is is very telling. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, he was excited too. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. <laughs> when I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. That aspect about a bribe, people are thinking, well, Paul bring, collects money from all over the Mediterranean world, and then he brings it to Jerusalem, so he must have some money bag somewhere. He kept hoping for that. Now look what we see. This switch has taken place. This is fascinating. Felix has the seat of local power. But he has come face to face with the power and a kingdom greater than his, greater than that of Rome, and he does not know how to deal with it. Paul came to Caesarea to stand trial, and now Felix is on trial. His life is laid bare under the gospel. And Felix has nowhere to hide. And his response, I love this. I love this. That's enough. I'll listen again when it's convenient. It is such an honest statement. It's a statement you and I make. It's it's a statement that many people make who will never come to follow Jesus. Or who will put it off and put it off. Now is inconvenient time for me to be exposed to the sin in my life. I've got a new job. I'm looking at a new relationship. Having Jesus as Lord over everything in my life would be inconvenient. It wasn't convenient for the Jews when it pushed up against their national identity. It wasn't convenient for the Greeks when it pushed up against their religious ideas and their ideologies. It wasn't convenient for Felix. It pushed back on his lack of morality. It pushed back on his power, his authority. Maybe it's inconvenient for you this morning. Maybe you have reasons. They might be what seem like very good reasons. But the second way that the gospel challenges us is this. The gospel does not bow to our demands. The gospel does not bow to our demands. Today we live in a culture that says to Jesus, once you agree with my demands, then then I'll bow to you. It's a strange way to talk about he who holds all of creation together by his word. My decisions for my life, my wants, my desires. When he says yes to my demands, then I will follow. Christopher Christopher Watkins, not Christopher Walken, but Christopher Watkins. I can't believe, no. No. He says this, he says, when we we make this demand of Jesus, this is to suggest that God must treat us as the ultimate arbiters of what is acceptable proof, regardless of what God himself may or may not have to say on the matter, and meet us on our own terms before there can be any question of faith. Translated into religious language, this comes out as, God, if you bow down to me as your God, I will then and only then bow down to you, and in doing so, validate my own superior judgment That's what it comes down to for a lot of people. I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. If he conforms to my way of thinking, then I'll think about faith. In essence, we're saying, once God bows to me, I will bow to him. Well, Felix, that won't work here. <laughs> and I'll say to you this morning, that that does not work when we come face to face with the gospel. It doesn't come doesn't work when we come face to face with the risen Lord of all creation. Felix is a man not known for righteousness, he's not known for self-control. He's known instead as a lustful, angry, passionate man. His wife is 16 and he stole her from a previous marriage. Paul would say, Felix, I know I came here to be put on trial, but you need to know that there is a higher authority. And as Paul would write, probably around this time, possibly actually in a prison in Caesarea or later in Rome, he wrote this in Philippians 2:9 to 11 Speaking of Jesus, speaking of the highest authority, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, even yours, Felix, even Caesar's, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Felix, I know you're holding on to your glory. I know you're holding on to your authority, but that doesn't work here. So the gospel does not bow to demands, demands of bribery in this case, demands to change or shift. The gospel is on God's terms. And that's why the last challenge is the gospel is always inconvenient. (laughs) The gospel is always inconvenient. We will never come to a point when we can say, now I'm ready. (laughs) I got everything in place now. I'm ready. The very stuff we want to get in its proper place before we come to Jesus cannot be put in its proper place without Him. Our our, our lives do not organize properly without Him. I need to figure out who I am. We know who we are when we know who Jesus is. I need to take care of my family, my finances, my career. All of those find their proper place in our lives when Christ is at the center. This is not new. St. Augustine said this, or Augustine, depending on your back. God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. If you're like me this week, you've had your hands full of all sorts of things that we've used to define ourselves. Or maybe we we continue to, to pine for accomplishments, one more deal, one more experience, a change in the scenery never convenient. The voice of Christ implores you and I to drop those things. Place him at the center. Tether ourselves to embrace him in the gospel. James 4, 7, 10 says this. Another earlier follower of Jesus said, Submit yourselves then to God. It's pretty straightforward. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Now, everyone felt that right in their gut, didn't they? Nobody likes these kinds of (laughs) texts. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It seems pretty gloomy. But here's the point of what James is saying there. We all want to get to the last five words of that text. We all want to get to, and he will lift you up. But we don't want to do anything before it. Being lifted up to new life comes after the death of ourselves. It comes after repentance. It comes, repentance is the letting go of all those things. All those things that we said, we just need these, and then maybe, or you need to let me bring this with me into the new kingdom. And God's saying, no, 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 that that has no place here. It comes when we stop being double-minded with a a foot in the the beautiful story that out-narrates all other stories, and one foot in the secular story of our culture. There is no life living that way. In... uh, In an hour and a bit, I will be baptizing Ale and and Ariel. And while I lower them into the water, after they've given their testimony, their declaration that that Jesus is king of their lives, I will declare, you've been buried with Christ and you've been raised to to new life. That is the challenge of Christianity. That is the invitation of Christianity. Give up our demands Stop waiting for it to be convenient and let him lift you up. Give in to the love and the forgiveness and the hope, the new identity as as a child of the living God, the God King Jesus Christ. No other story we try to grab onto and fill our hands with can give us that kind of hope and joy. The challenge for us this morning is that We need to offer our whole selves over to the grace and the forgiveness. Our whole selves over to our allegiance to God who loves and saves us. And we do that when we stop holding God hostage to our demands. When we stop saying, yes, I understand life, death, resurrection. Seated above all of creation. But I won't follow him until... Yeah, I like the lift me up part, but I'm not going to repent of the stuff that I'm holding on to. There's no life in that. There's no life in walking between two worlds. The time is now to stop living in two stories. To to take the gospel at face value and to, to fall into the life that the gospel offers us. I don't know how you arrived here this morning. I don't know what story you've been living in this week. This story outnarrates all other stories. It bows to no other story. It is the right side of history. It is what brings true hope, true life, eternal life, and an identity everywhere. You're gonna hear five different ways to have an identity today before you get home. They're gonna say, do this to yourself. Think this way, follow this leader. Drop them. Do not bring them into God's kingdom. They have no place there. When we give our allegiance to Jesus, that is our first political allegiance. It is the first place we find our identity. It is the ultimate place for us to find true life and true hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the way it continues to change lives. As I think even over these last few months... God, and I, th- I think of different faces, people I've interacted with. I see those who've, who've walked in here with a smile and a new story to live in on Sunday mornings. As I gather with them to, to grab a coffee and learn their, as they're unpacking their new story of what it means to follow you. And God, I see those who come in each week, I meet with, come to visit me at the church, saying this, this story doesn't work. Maybe some of us in this room are saying, the story doesn't work. And I would invite your spirit, always loving, always kind, to challenge us and comfort us and point out those things that we've been refusing to let go of. Addictions we've been refusing to allow your light to shine on, to allow our brothers and sisters to walk with us in the midst of them. Different ideologies and and ideas that the world is running after. The world is dividing itself up into these different areas. and, And we're jumping along with it. That is not how your kingdom works. You died to create a new kind of community. May we be that community. May the world as it looks at Town Center, at CA Church, as your church as a whole. May it find no evidence to dismiss us. May it, look, may it look and see us doing the, the, living the animated life, animated by your spirit to good works. To serve this world, to serve this community, to serve each other and to love each other well. And may we, like Paul, in the midst of, of perverted ideas and, and perversions of truth being thrown at us, slander and persecution, may we respond with the peace peace and the hope and the identity that he was so secure with that he didn't have to fight back with the same kind of fear and venom that they did. May, we be, may the peace of Christ be evident in our lives. Personally, as we give more to you, and in our community as well, as we step out of this place and live as ambassadors of the gospel, proclaiming with our words and with our lives, be reconciled to your God deal with us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.